Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for this session for Trisha's programming for Tisha B'Av. Uh, so our next session is going to be on suffering and metaphors, limits and opportunities with Dr. Tammy Jacobowitz. Uh, Dr. Jacobowitz is the chair of the Tanakh department at SAR High School in Riverdale, New York as well as the founding director of Makom Basiach at SAR, which is an immersive adult education program for parents. She's also taught Bible for the Waxner Heritage Program and is an adjunct faculty member at Yeshiva Chovevei Torah. Uh, so we are going to begin this session in just a minute. It focuses on some of the different metaphors in the book of Eicha that serve to, cha the, serve to capture a range of different emotions in the wake of destruction. And the rabbis of the Midrash also draw on metaphor in order to grapple with the impact of that loss and a sense of drastic change, guilt, and anger. Uh, so over the next 75 minutes, we'll be immersing ourselves in these metaphors and considering the power as well as the failings of using metaphors to navigate sufferings. All right, thank you all for, for coming on today to this class. It's a hard day to know how to fill and how to spend. And learning Torah, as we know, we're limited on how and where and in what way we can learn on Tisha B'Av. And um, I'm grateful that there's plenty of Torah that actually can help us through this day. And I have long found the Midrash on the book of Eicha, Eicha Rabbah, to be a very useful resource to think about suffering, to think about strategies for suffering, and to, as we're now in kind of this 2.30 past chatzot, we're not yet at redemption, but we're ready to start thinking about how to move beyond it. So I'm hopeful that this class will allow us to sit with and begin to think about what comes next. Before we get to the sources, I wanted to offer two words of introduction. The first is a number of years ago, um, I'm a big fan of On Being by Krista Tippett. And I heard an interview with a therapist and author named Pauline Boss. And Pauline Boss introduced a term called ambiguous loss. The first thing she did was talk about how Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when she introduced the five stage of grieving, five stages of grieving, she had never intended for them to be understood the way that many people understood them, which sounded as if it was five stages you go through and then there's closure. And Pauline's book is called The Myth of Closure. And she speaks about how even Kubler-Ross did not imagine that people would ever think that grieving ends and that if you don't get to that end, you have somehow failed at grieving. And in the context of that conversation, she talked about this term called ambiguous loss which is a kind of loss that many of us, to be honest, are experiencing right now. But before we talk about Corona, it's the kind of loss that can happen if God forbid your family member is missing an action, or if a family member is suffering from dementia, where you have both lost and not lost the person, where you are going through a process where in some capacity, let's say with dementia, the person 
the body is still with us, and in other ways, the person is not with us. And she talks about how challenging it is to suffer through and manage the experience of ambiguous loss. I found that concept to be enormously helpful in thinking about not only episodes in my life, but also in thinking about what it means to be a part of Jewish history. And I'm just gonna spoil the whole thesis of this class right now and say that one of the things I think Chazal did for us through Midrash and specifically through the Midrashim we're gonna do in the second half of this class is they showed us a way of creating the possibility of ambiguous loss in a scenario that could have been understood as a closed book, that could have been understood as a grief that had an end at a story that had an end. They create a petak, they created an opening so that we could exist in ambiguous loss. I'll get to that later in the class. Last week, I heard a revisiting of the podcast where Pauline Boss was back on the air with Krista Tippett, and she was asking her, I don't know if anybody else heard it, but there was almost a, a plea in her voice, please, Pauline, you are the expert in ambiguous loss. We across the globe right now are going through this terrible time period where we are losing so many big things and so many little things, and yet we are still here and we're somehow managing. Give us some expert, expert advice, like how can we do this better? And Pauline shared with Krista, she said, I mean, the truth is I, I'm, I'm going through it just with you. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on this and let's check in periodically and see how this is going. And I heard in Krista's voice and in my own ears, the kind of imagined fantasy that there could be somebody out there who would be able to say like, here's the path, here's how you do this well. The reality is we don't have such a person. We're all in this together and we're all trying to figure our way through this experience communally, personally, and globally. The second intro piece is to talk about language and metaphors, which is really the, the, the title and the, the main subject of today's class. I also think that thinking about the coronavirus and the pandemic that we're living through helps us understand why language, why metaphors are both so useful and so limiting when it comes to navigating suffering. I mean, how happy were we? How happy was the press when we could compare this at times to the Spanish flu of 1918? If there is something in our experience now that can be likened to something else, immediately there's a kind of comfort that emerges because you are not going through something, here's the other word, unprecedented. Right? Every time I hear that word, I feel a shudder, a sense of don't keep reminding me that we have no analog. This came up for me so often early in the early months when my kids would ask me questions about what was coming next and how things would go. And I had to admit to them that my knowledge was just as vast as theirs. And there was nothing in my life that I can compare this to save 9-11, which was another kind of metaphor that helped us in some ways in America to say, we've been through something before that was all of us and we came together, et cetera, et cetera. So we see and we know that when we can find an analog, when we can find a metaphor to compare our suffering to, 
it automatically gives us a sense of comfort that we are not living through something that nobody has ever known, nobody can ever understand. Now, this appears to be the experience, we're gonna to get to Yirmiyahu just in a minute for those two psukim on your sheet. This appears to be the experience of the Navi, of, of Yirmiyahu, who spent so much of his career warning and teaching everybody to hear the thing they didn't wanna hear, to see and visualize the thing they didn't wanna visualize. And then, even when the Khurban came, he seems to be in a place of shock. The book of Eicha is filled with, as we all know, we've read it very recently, filled with so many painful psukim of a person who's expressing the inexpressible, trying to find a way, again, trying to find language, both as a way to help others understand what we've lost, right? That's the idea of a lament. And also it seems to find language in order to bring a kind of comfort. And Yirmiyahu is very personal in this book in certain ways, certainly the way that Chazal read Aniha Gever, the beginning of Perak that's him. That's him finally allowing his personal voice to come through after a career of not being allowed to have a kind of personal life, the erasure of the self. If you think about the opening two prakim for a moment of Eicha, of which we have two representatives on the screen, they are both prakim that fundamentally borrow the metaphor of a grieving woman, a suffering woman, a woman who is compared to a bitula, who is compared to a zona, who is compared to a woman who has lost her children. The full gamut, the full range, as it were, of a suffering woman's life cycle, she is the stand-in for Zion. Now what's terribly difficult, I would say, about the metaphors in Perak Aleph and Perak Bet is that while they are just that, they are a metaphor to talk about Zion, Yerushalayim, and it seems at times also Am Yisrael, there are also images in these prakim that are real. The images of children asking for food, the images of mothers not knowing where to turn, those also borrow, it seems, from the lived experience of B'nai Israel during that time. I think that's also a feature of language and metaphor in grief. It is an analog and it's also real. Now Yirmiyahu in Perak Bet, if you look at the first pasuk there, towards the middle of Perak Bet, after he has been comparing Yushalayim to that full range of female suffering, he says in Pasuk Yud Gimel, Ma aideich. Ma adamelach habat Yerushalayim, ma ashvelach va'anachamech betulat batzion. Right, he says very clearly in a in a note of exasperation. I've run out of metaphors. Right, I to what can I compare you to? Because what you are like right now is so unprecedented. But if I could va'anachamech, the finding of language would offer a modicum of comfort. And then in a startling move, he says, Ki gadol kayam shivrech, mi yirpalach. Not my word unprecedented. He says, the reason why I'm having such a hard time finding the language to describe your experience is because your rupture 
is your, 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 your sickness is so great. It's as great as the sea. Mi your palach. Oh, it's beautiful. Even in the moments of expressing how there are no language, there is no language available to him, he expresses that through a metaphor. Okay, there's much more to be said about Yirmiyahu and Eicha. We are going to spend the bulk of today focusing on what Chazal do with some of Yirmiyahu's choices, with some of his metaphors, and how they take them in all kinds of other directions. And we're gonna start with the first one from the opening pasuk, probably the most famous. How, how is it that the city who had once been so full with people is now sitting alone? She has become like a widow. If you look with me right at that opening midrash, if you scroll down just a little bit, Michael, so we can see all of it together. Two different, two different approaches, two different ways in to this mashal, two different ways of, as I suggested, offering a kind of coping. If we take this mashal, as midrash will do in a moment, and take it very seriously and dig deep into it, maybe we can find something else in it that will give us a way out. So the Midrash begins as follows. Haita almana ein ketiv kan, ela ke'almana. I should say, of course, that Eicha Rabbah was written, was put together in about the fifth century CE. So we're talking about Chazal who are living in the land of Israel several hundred years after the second Chorban Bayit, reading a book that is describing the Chorban of the first Bayit. So we're, we're hearing their words about those words, in a sense, getting, getting two Chorbanot for one. So they say, Yirmiyahu did not use the word Haita Almana, but rather Ke Almana, that Ke, which of course is what you need for, for a simile. You need the Ke in there. She is like an Almana. Continues the Midrash. How is she like an almana and not actually an almana? Remember this expression, it's going to come up later. This is like a woman whose husband went to Medinatayam, the provinces, extremely far away. But when he went on this long trip, he always had the intention to come back. He didn't leave in a fit of rage. He didn't leave because he understood their marriage to have been over. He left for whatever reason. But during that whole time that he's gone, she is like an almana. So you see right away what the Midrash is doing. It's hyper-literalizing the idea of a metaphor or really a simile and saying, Okay, the fact that it's a simile already eases the pain. Let's take it really seriously and see that Yirmiyahu is not suggesting that Yerushalayim, Tzion, or Am Yisrael is actually an almana, but they're in this kind of limbo state and leaving open the possibility that at some point he might come back. Continues that, that passage. Darach kashto ke'oyev, again, Oyev and Ketiv Khan, Ella Ke Oyev. When Yirmiyahu later in Perak Bet 
compares really God to an enemy. Again, the Midrash says, let's be very careful. It's ke'oyev. Hashem is not actually the enemy. He was behaving as an enemy. Here it would be nice. The Midrash does not give us a way, there's no bracket, to understand how can we soften it? What does that look like? But here it's a kind of a collection of other expressions in the Midrash, which also have that cuff. Right away, the Midrash says, okay, there's a bit of softening that can happen. I'm moving quickly, but of course, if you have a question or a comment, please write it in the chat and I'll pause when I'm done with the section and, and take a look at what you have to say. Another idea. Now we get two different opinions. Rabbi Chama Bar Ukba and Rabbanan. First, Rabbi Chama Bar Ukba. He says, Lema Yisrael Domin. That idea of Almana, you notice that all along I've been saying Almana could be Zion, could be Yerushalayim, could be Am Yisrael. Here, Rabbi Chama Ba'ukba says, this is referring to Yisrael. Now, what are they compared to, he asks. Why Almana? Why Ke Almana? L'shomeret yabam shetav'a mizonoteha velo tav'a ketubata. Wow, okay. So she's compared to a woman, a Shomeri Abam. Now, Shomeri Abam is a woman whose husband has died, and she is waiting to marry the brother of her deceased husband. She's in a limbo state. She is asking for her mezonot, meaning she is still being fed by the family, so she is connected to the family in that way. But she has not asked for a ketubah to say, I'm, I'm, this is over and I don't want to marry the brother and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm moving on. She herself is creating the conditions by which she is ke'almana. Although not so fast, I'm sure you all realize, what do you mean? She really lost her husband, right? So this is a very layered image because the Midrash is saying, yes, there has been a death. Yes, there has been a full loss, an almana, she is an almana, and at the same time, she's still hanging on by a thread. And she herself is the one, and of course, if we think about it, this is Am Yisrael. So the first opinion by Rahama Ba'ukba is, we are ke'almana because of ourselves. We are still the woman, ke'ilu, who are saying, we want to be fed by this family. We want in. We're not taking our ketubah and saying, we're done. That's Rabbi Chama Ba'ukba. Rabbanan is going to answer the question of who's keeping her ke'almana in a very different way. Rabbanan Amre, sheka'as al-matrona, ve'katav la'gita, ve'natan ve'chazar, mimena. Very painful to read out loud. Rabbanan says this can be compared to a king who got angry at his wife. He wrote her a get. He gave it to her, and then he took it back. Today we would call this a form of abuse. But he gives it to her. He says, here, we're over, it's done. And then he says, wait, I'm not sure. And he takes it back. Kol's man shehi mevakeshet lihina seila acher. Omerla, 
any time that this woman in this terrible scenario makes an effort to move on, to get married to another, he says to her, not so fast. Where's your get? I didn't divorce you. You can't go and marry somebody else. You're not free. And whenever she says that she wants to be nourished and fed, that she's still in the marriage, that he still owes her, that he's still obligated to her, he says to her, what do you mean? I already divorced you. This is a terrible midrash. <laughs> I'm happy I don't need to see your faces as we're reading it. It's a devastating midrash because we know what's coming. It's devastating on its own as a mashal. It's, e it's perhaps even more devastating when you think about it in terms of the, the nimshal. That's arguable, where your pain resides. But here's the nimshal. We know who's who. We know who's the king, and we know who's that, that woman stuck in this very terrible predicament. Many, many things to notice about this Midrash. The first thing to notice, of course, is that Am Yisrael is considered to be in that predicament of a woman who has both been divorced and not divorced. She is that woman who has no agency. She's fully constrained by, as it seems from the story, the categorical behavior, the unpredictable behavior of her husband. Of course, I glossed over ka'as al matrona, which in another shiur, we might actually amplify. Why did he get angry at her? What did she do? What were her sins? That's also an Eicharaba. That's also a focus of Tishabav, just not right now, right? What did she do? What did we do? We are not the innocent woman. We are not the innocent Am Yisrael. But from the vantage point of this Midrash, that's not the story. The story here is of B'nai Yisrael, who when they say, okay, we're moving on, the equivalent of marrying another, we're going to worship Avodah Zarah, which notice is not exactly an equivalent because it's a sin. We want to go and, mag and worship Avodah Zarah. Hashem says, what do you mean? Now, if you have your Tanakh, you should look that up. That's in Yeshayahu. That's in a, in a parak that is talking about, um, about, the, about the, the 10 tribes of Yisrael. They're like the first moment, the first moment of, of eviction, of banishment, of, of get. And whenever Am Yisrael say, wait, one second, do for us a nace, stay with us. We want in, we want to be a part of this partnership. Hashem says, Now, if we take a step back from both together, both Rabbi Chamer Ba'ufa and Rabbanan, we see two things. On the one hand, we see that this expression in Yirmiyahu, Haita Ke'almana, which served a certain purpose in his book. In the Midrashic reading, it serves a bit of a different purpose. Again, that term hyper-literalizing, taking that metaphor, that simile, and saying, let's really see what it offers us. And according to these two different opinions, they offer two perspectives on why it is that B'nai Yisrael are still in, arguably, a very difficult predicament with God, 
but in a relationship where there is both a tremendous loss, either Rabbi Chamer Be'ukba or Rabbanan, tremendous loss, either of the first husband or of a marriage that has any kind of stability, sanity, or love, there is tremendous loss, and at the same time, there is still a way in which the relationship is hanging on by a thread. Let me just pause there. I know that that was, that was a lot of material and kind of intense. Anybody want to share a thought or ask a question about anything that we've seen so far? Yeah, which form is worse? What do you mean by worse? Worse in what sense? It's hard to answer. Yeah, uh, it's kind of open there. Um, they're both qualitatively very um, and I guess I would say like which one is more, uh, more, more of a painful image and a more painful metaphor. Right. I think that, that neither of them are scenarios that anybody would ever sign up for or willingly be a part of, right, when they have distance from them. I guess the only bit of um, agency, which is a form of better, would be in Rabbi Fama Bar Ukba because she's choosing it. I think I find, personally, I find the Rabbanan to be more horrifying um, and yet somewhat satisfying on a literary perspective because there's such a beautiful way of weaving in the, two, the disparate stages of Jewish history and suggesting that it's all part of one story. Yeah, thank you, great question. Rabbi Chama seems to point to a new God that we'll marry if one takes it literally. Um, right. The alternative that's never explored. Shomeret Yabam, who is God's brother? Great point, great point. Okay, let's move on to the next part. I did promise you that there would be a redemptive turn in this year. If anybody's been paying attention, we're not there yet, and we won't be there in part two. It's coming in part three. Okay, Eicharaba, as we just saw, that was, the, that was Parsha Aleph. That was from the actual opening words, Haita Ka'amana. That's where the Midrash is behaving in the way that we are more familiar with Midrashim, going pasuk by pasuk. The beginning of Eicharaba, if you study it, has 36 petichtaot. And a petichta, as many of us are familiar, a petichta is a particular, particular literary form where Chazal bring a pasuk from another sefer, interpret that sefer, that, that, that pasuk, and eventually lead to the pasuk of, of the mikra that is under investigation. This is a bit of an unusual petichta, unusual in a few senses. Number one, the opening pasuk is from Yirmiyahu, which is really not, doesn't qualify exactly as a separate sefer when we're studying Eicha, since it's the same author. And it's not far afield in content, um, as most petichta do, choosing psukim from usually wisdom literature that are woven back to the pasuk. The second is, as you'll notice as we move through the petichta, it doesn't seem to exactly interpret the pasuk in Yirmiyahu section by section. Some sections do, some sections don't. It has a life of its own. You'll see, you'll see as we read along. Okay, the opening pasuk is from Yirmiyahu Tet. The pasuk is pasuk Yitzayin. Ko Amar Hashem Tzvakot, 
Interesting moment in this parak, the parak in Yirmiyahu, Yirmiyahu is describing a lot of weeping, his own weeping, other people's weeping. And when he gets to this point, he's talking about the next stage of things. Signaling to people that the weeping, the grieving will be so great that you will need to call in the professional lamenters, the Makonanot, women in the ancient world who had this as a kind of job where they would show up at a funeral, go through the streets and sing and lament and, and bring for other people an understanding of what loss had come. With Yirmiyahu, it doesn't seem to be that people will not understand, but that the grieving will be so many, you'll need to bring out all, take out all the stops, the, the, the women and their daughters, the next generations. Could be that one of the questions that the Midrash is, is answering or addressing is why? Why do we need these professional mourners? Okay, three interpretations of perhaps the scenario that prompts this kind of lamenting. Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, Rabbanan. Rabbi Yochanan Amar, Lamelech Shahayulo Shne Banim, Kaasal Harishon, Natalatamakel, Vachavato, Vihiglahu. Amar, Oi Laze, Me Eze Shalva Nigla. So again, a king, and here it's not a wife. Speaking about metaphors, we know that we travel through many metaphors when we compare our relationship with God, all of which implicitly, if you spend time with teenagers and you use metaphors to talk about God, you will encounter the frustration and the infuriation. But it's not that. Comparing my relationship with God to a relationship with a friend, but I can see my friend. Comparing it to my parents, but I can get into a fight and then make up. That's true. That's one of the limitations of metaphors, never experienced as acutely in adolescence and when it, comes to, when it comes to God. But here, this metaphor is of a king who has two children. He gets angry at the first one. He takes a stick, and with that stick, he hits him, and then he banishes him. The king says, after the first son has left, Ive, right? From what, from what beauty, from what peace? he has now been evicted or banished. It seems like this oi, this lament is for the son. He's lost the time, the time in the palace. The story continues. Ka'asal hasheni tamakel It's very painful actually to read that, the way it's written, that it's the same, it's the same behavior, the same action. It seems at first that the king does not learn from what happened. He repeats it when the same cause again, left unsaid what the cause is about, not our focus today. But after that second son, who's only the second, doesn't seem to be presented as special or different or anything, but just the second in line, after he's banished, the king says, Ana hava de tarbute bisha, which is an astounding recognition. He says, I am the one what does the translation say? I am the one who, the education I gave, the fault is mine, right? The education I gave him was bad. The king in a startling mood, right? Instead of looking at him and saying, oi, laze, he says, anahu. He recognizes, perhaps, he has two sons. They both do the same thing, fall down the same path. He takes upon himself 
a remarkable amount of responsibility. And this isn't even the redemptive part. Kach galu aseret shvatim v'ilchil hakadosh baruch hu omer lahem et ha-pasuk hazeh oi lahem. See how well it fits. Kinadudumi menu, Hosea, talking about the 10 tribes. When they are, when they have been banished, Hashem says, oi lahem. Hosea says, kinadudu. V'kevan shegalu Yehudau binyamim kavayachol amar hakadosh baruch hu oi li al shivri. Many things to notice again in this startling midrash. We said number one, number two. Well, it's not so simple that they're just number one, number two. We find out that number two is Galuti Yehudah and Binyamin. So when we, as the inheritors, right, the descendants of Yehudah and Binyamin, and of course that's the subject of Eicha, the first banishment, the first exile of Aserta Shvatim has long happened. Okay, but then maybe you're not so special. You just were second in line, right? So that, that first passage already plays with your familiar sense of what does it mean that we're in relationship with God as part of the Shvatim. And number two, within that very short span of time, at least the way it's recorded in that paragraph, the Midrash leaves open the possibility that Hashem actually, in addition to noticing our, our errant ways and our total failure at being a person who deserves to be in the palace, that's stage one, also recognizes a tremendous amount of responsibility and that oily, that cry, is not a cry for the other, it's a cry for the self. Of course, it's a cry for the self that, that, that is even worse than just a cry for the self because it includes the suffering that he not only created by kicking them out, but it seems created from the very beginning as a parent. It only gets intense from there. That's Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish Amar. No, this can be compared, again, but the scenario was not, not actually as Rabbi Yochanan had suggested. Ka'asal harishon, same way. Natalatamakel, same. Vechavato, and he hid him. But in this case, upiper umet. The son actually dies at the hand of the king, which shouldn't be so painful to say out loud because we just read Echa. And Yirmiyahu says it himself, right? Ke'oyev, we know where it comes from. We believe very firmly through the Nivi'im that history does not happen on its own, that Hashem is telling us through the Nivi'im that he is acting through history. But to say it just like that through Mashal, you see how Mashal is able to express the inexpressible in a way that you would never even dare to say it about the things themselves. The sun dies. The father sits down presumably, and begins to lament for the son. Ka'asal hasheni v'natalatamakel v'chavato upirper umet. Amar, me'ata ein bikoach lekonen alahem, ela kir'u l'mekoninot v'tekoninu alahem. There's our pursuit from Yirmiyahu. So after the same thing happens with the second son, the father says, and I, I, I would imagine people have different interpretations why he says this, but he says, Ein bikoach. I have nothing in me anymore to lament for my son. I need to call people to do it for me. We could read that in a terribly callous way. We could. Or we could read it 
in a similar way to Rabbi Yochanan, not a full responsibility, but ain be, ain be klum. I'm done. I'm wasted. As a parent, it's over. I realize now that I've, I have nothing left to give. I don't even have the ability. Who am I to cry for this child? Kach says the Nimshal, when the Aser Tashvatim were, were exiled, Hashem was mitkonin alehem. And we have a pasuk from Amos. Shimu atadavar hazeh asher anuchi nosei alechem kina beit Yisrael. And when Yehuda and Binyamin were exiled, again, there's that word kaviachol, an important word that Chazal sometimes use when the metaphor seems to be perhaps too dangerous or too close up against where we don't want to go. The Midrash says, when Yehudah and Binyamin were exiled, God said, And that's the moment when Yirmiyahu says, The end of that passage does a very nice kind of proofing that this makes sense as a read of the Pasuk in Yirmiyahu. Why? When the Pasuk said, call the women and they will come and they should come quickly and they will, they will cry, the Midrash says, Alehem ein ketiv kan ela aleinu, didi vedidhon. Betishena einehem dima ein ketiv kan ela einenu, didi vedidhon. Vafafem yizlumayim ein ketiv kan ela vafafenu, didi vedidhon. Meaning, the crying was not for them, the crying was for all of us. The crying is mine and the crying is theirs. And so when God, Kaviachol, asks for them to cry for him, he's included in that crying. It's for him too. Finally, Rabbanan. And you see how things are intensifying. You should be scared to read the third. Rabbanan Amrin, Lamelech Shahayulo Banim. That's not an arbitrary number. Now we're not divided by Ben Rishon, Ben Cheni. Now we're divided by the Shvatim. Umeitu shnaim hidchil mitchanem ba'asara. When this king lost two of his twelve, he found comfort in the ten. Meitu od shnaim hidchil mitchanem bishmona. Meitu od shnaim hidchil mitchanem b'shisha. Meitu od shnaim. Hidchil mitchanem ba'arba'a. Meitu od shnaim. Hidchil mitchanem bishnaim. Bekevan shemeitu kulam. Hidchil mikonen alehem. Echa yashva bazad. Of course, there are echoes in here of Eov and the image of group after group after group, loss after loss. Rabbanan is so different. There's no ka'as. There's no, there is no banishment. There is no killing. There is just a king who is de depicted as losing his children one, two by two by two until he's left all alone. And in that startling final move, Kevan shemeitu kulam hitchil mikonin alehem echa yashva badad. What happens in that last line is not only in, in Rabbanan's image does the king still have in him koach, likonen. Remember, this king got nechama all along. His job as a parent was somehow filled and emotionally resonant the whole way along. And at the end, he has bo koach, 
but his kinah are the very words, Eicha Yashva Badad, which were the words of Yirmiyahu to describe the bidud, the bidud of Yerushalayim, the bidud of Am Yisrael. And now Chazal give us a present and they say, guess what? Hashem is alone too. Hashem is bibidud. And when he, is, when he cries for us, he is in parallel. The aloneness that we feel is made parallel by the aloneness that he feels. It's the pain of bidud. I'm saying this now. I never use that word out loud when I taught this midrash, but it's so current. The pain of bidud is that we're all in it and we're all in it on our own. And so the feeling of, of parallel lives, it's, it's helpful, but up to a point, right? Like, I don't really want to hear about your bidud because I'm doing it too. I can't really gain solace from your experience because I'm, I'm going through it too. But there is something, something to know that you're not in this alone. And so I think at this moment, what Chazal offer us at the end of this Midrash, this very difficult Midrash, which positions God both in the situation of father who is creating hurt, they also position, position Hashem as the one who is the only who knows what it's like to be like us. Okay, I'm going to stop there again if anybody has any comments or questions before we move to the last part. Noah, what do you mean? I would think that Chazal would have a more um, like pluralistic presentation. So I would think that, that like seeing the, how the Rabbanon understands God's, uh, the, the Rabbanon's understanding of the Mashal, that there's, can, there's more and more deplete, like emotional depletion as, as each loss occurs uh, to the extent that he no longer has, at the end, he no longer has the koach to actually lament the, the, the current state of his final sons, that kind of would show us that Rabbi Shimon's, that Rabbi Shimon's mashal isn't, isn't a father who, who's like saying that he, he doesn't have koach anymore um, because he's depleted, but rather is like the less charitable read that we were, that we were offering about Rabbi Shimon, that, um, that like, it's just kind of like, I can't, I, I don't want to be bothered with this. Yeah, I guess it's always a question how to understand passages in relationship to each other. Generally speaking, my, my instinct is to read this as an intensification, and then you would be right, right? Um, and on the other hand, it's offset by the where the king at the end emerges not as an even worse kind of killer, right? It's Meitu, and he is one who, who offers himself, who offers his kinah. So this, this Midrash is a little funky that way. And I guess you have a choice, Rabbanan helping you understand Rabbi Shimon or the other way around. Um, Adira, what do you mean? Um, kind of like when you say like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Like, so when the second son is being, um, uh, you know, died, he's like, oh, maybe I have to take responsibility for what happened. In, uh, it wasn't Rabbanan, I think it was like, um, like the first or second interpretation? Yeah, so in the first one, the, the son has not died. He's been banished. So there, there's more room for him to say, right? He says the fault is mine. I, oh, right. right? So again, we're, we don't know how old these children are imagined to be, but they seem fully grown. When a, If a parent, that's a terrible realization to have, right? Everything I've given them has been, has been, has led them on this path. What do I do now? Right. What does it even mean at that point to take responsibility? Um, 
what's 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 interesting for us as readers of this story with the nimshal is that we are that second son who's still in banishment right and we hopefully don't see ourselves as unredeemable try again try again give us you know give us give us a, give us another path give us another way home we want to be in that palace right i'm i'm happy you see that it's not all me Maybe there, there, there's perhaps more, more possibility for, for a future with Rabbi Yochanan, clearly, than the others when, when the child's not here. Right, you see already, you see with the, with the child hearing in your head, because the ones we're coming next are all going back to the marriage metaphor, how different things sit when we see ourselves as Hashem's children or we see Hashem, see ourselves as Hashem's spouse a very different room for where things could have gone wrong, what the relationship, what the expectations were in the relationship or are, and what, what do you do to redeem the process and the path. And, and, and the amazing thing, and we see it just today in the short shiur, we are not allowed to use one or the other. We are both. We are both. We, are, we, we occupy both positions and at least and Hashem occupies at least these two positions with us. So how, how generative can these metaphors be and limiting in helping us to understand what it means to be in relationship and what does it mean to be metakein, to fix the relationship? Where do I start? Do I start seeing myself as the kid or the spouse? What do I expect of Hashem? Okay, Michael, if you don't mind scrolling to part three. Okay. No, why are you smiling? You know these midrashim? No, I just have breathing space, so it's finally oh, okay. like less, <laughs> less intense, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's still Eifah Rav and it's still Tishabov, so um, the breathing is still shallow. But um, but here is what I was talking about in terms of ambiguous loss. Okay, the next three midrashim that we're going to look at, I really see as examples of how Chazal not only gave us the path to be where we are today, which is Jews learning Torah as a means to understand ourselves in relationship to Hashem and as connecting to each other as Am Yisrael. We are heirs to the work that Chazal did in Midrashim like this. So these are like meta-Midrashim. But I also think that they go back to what I was talking about in the beginning, of how did Chazal create breathing space within the metaphor? How did, the cre how did they create a way in which we could look at the losses right up close and yet find within those losses the possibility to stretch it so that it's like an MIA, so that it's ambiguous and it's not over? That's what I mean by metaphoric breathing space. Okay, take a look at the first one. Echarabba, Parsha Dalid. Focusing on a pasuk in the middle of the parak, Vayatet Eshbitzion Batochal Yesodoteha. You'll notice if you're following in the English that the English follows a slightly different version of the Midrash. It's a little bit longer, um, but essentially the same. The pasuk in, in, in Eicha, if I'm reading it at face value, right, there's not actually a metaphor in there. It's that a fire, he has kindled a fire, and we know who the he is, and the capitalization makes that totally clear, which has devoured the foundations. If I'm not reading it as a metaphor, which it really isn't in the pasuk, 
then the Yisodot are most likely talking about, well, at a minimum level, I'll just pretend I hear your responses, minimum level, Beit HaMikdash, more maximal level, Yerushalayim, most maximal level, Am Yisrael, Batochal Yisodoteha. The most maximal level is unacceptable. That's what we've been saying. Ke almana, please. Don't write me off. This isn't over. If it's the Yisodot, that's a very frightening idea. It's not just that there was actual banishment, fire. Remember the metaphor that partakes of reality, death, division, etc. But to say that down to the foundations would make it seem as if the whole thing is over. In order to temper that pasuk, or actually I see the tempering, so here's where they temper it. They bring a pasuk from Tehillim as an interfacing, intersecting pasuk. And the pasuk in Tehillim is Mizor la'asaf Elokim ba'u goyim b'nachalatecha. Opening to a perak which is describing destruction. And Chazal take a good look at the opening of that pasuk and says, Mizmor, a song, b'chiyami ba'ilei, why did you start it with Mizmor? That's not appropriate. That's off. That's a mismatched um, intro. It should say, and if you look in the English, they gave lots of options. A weeping, a lament, a dirge. Not Mizmor. To answer the question of why Tehillim begins with Mizmor, and to address the question of Yesodot, Rab Elazar offers the following mashah. Amar Belazar, Mashalamelech Shasach Hupa Libno. Oh, we're back with the sun. Tikain Tikain Bito Giada the Siada the Tira. A king here, we didn't get to see this yet, in the loving stage of his relationship with his son, where he not only commissioned the Hupa for his son, for his upcoming marriage. We don't, by the way, know who the wife is, not part of the story. But he himself built it. Giada, v'siada, v'siara, those rhyme. Those are the three verbs that describe just how much love and effort the king himself put into building this chupa. Pamachat, hich iso u sitara. There's that ka'as again. It's like the leitmotif of today. One time, the sun got him angry. Again, we don't know why. It's not the focus, but it's there. It's always part of the story. And the father tore down that chuppah that he himself had built for the son. Hitchil pedagogue Yoshev Umezamer. The pedagogue who is the hired tutor, the one who spent so much time with the prince, who taught him not just Greek, and wisdom and possibly Torah, but also was responsible for his moral education. This pedagogue watching this scene, along with everyone else, sits down and starts to sing. Or in the other version, he takes out an instrument and starts to play. Amrulo, people passing by said, Notice by the way, the slippage already from the Nimshal, since when is it a bite, right? But he says, the king destroyed his house and you're sitting and you're singing? Which you could add to that. I tried with the exclamation points, question marks. Like either it's like chutzpah or it's what, what are you thinking? Or right, it's, some, it's exasperation and it's confusion. It's paradoxical behavior. 
and the pedagogue says to them, Two ways to read this. First, just literal. He says, Here's, I'll tell you why I'm singing. I'm singing because the king destroyed the chupa. He, he let out his fury, literally, on the chupa and not on his child. So there's good news and bad news here. The bad news is we find out the pedagogue knows that the king could have killed the son. We know that already from the other Michelin that we offered. The good news is that the pedagogue brings to the surface that nobody else had even thought of. He says, yeah, I see that destruction. I see that beautiful chupa that was an expression of this love the king has for the child. But I'll tell you what I also see. I see the king going for a walk, I'm adding this in, with the child. The child is still alive, everybody. The child is well. Let's look at the loss, let's acknowledge it, but let's not get swallowed by it. Let's look at what else is in view, and what else is in view, my friends, is the Ben. Here's the Nimshal. Asaf says, right, God destroyed his Mikdash. I'm, I'm sorry, they said to Asaf, Hashem destroyed his Mikdash, and you're sitting and singing, and he says, yes, here's why I'm singing. Sheshafach HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the same story, right? What we thought of before, and even in the mashal as this gorgeous, painstakingly created chupa, which was like the first structure where the couple would live, what we thought of in the psukim as, as the Beit HaMikdash, the glorious Beit HaMikdash, now in the eyes of Asaf, in the eyes of the pedagogue, he says, listen up, people. You know what that bayit was? It was Eitzim V'Avanim. Let's look at its materials. And materials can be rebuilt. They were destroyed. They were burned. But Yisrael, Yisrael is intact. So that opening pasuk, which we said, bore the possibility of, of, of linking ourselves to a fate which was total and complete with closure on the grief and suffering, now is reread as Bayatet Eish Bitzion Vatochal Rak Yisodoteha. That's it. It was just the Yisodot. It was just the building that was destroyed, but the relationship is intact. Okay, this is the kind of redemption that I'm talking about for Tishabav. It's not a happy story, right? There's loss, there's destruction. It's terrible, it's public. Everybody sees it, everybody knows it. And yet, and what the pedagogue offers, which of course is the stand-in for Chazal, let's look at things in another way. Let's not get swallowed by the loss in front of us. Let's look at those psukim again and see in those psukim the possibility for a story that will take us out of here. Oh, I'm seeing lots of comments. Let me take a break before I look, move on to the next one. Oh, that's terrible, Natalie, right? If he killed all his son's friends and was like, well, you're still alive, right? But that's not this story, right? You're right. If that's what it would, if there, if there, it's not a callousness about murder, if I'm understanding you correctly, right? It's, a, it's a, a recognition that there is a rupture in the relationship. There's chaos, right? And, and, and we could take sides there and say, well, maybe he's just an angry guy. Or we could say, I don't know, we're looking at this time and time again. There's chaos for good reason. So there's rupture. But within the rupture, there is also the possibility of a long-term view. The, the, 
the expression, the representative of their love is not the whole thing itself. That's what Chazal do. They expand our vision. The Beit HaMikdash is not the sum total of what it means to be in relationship with Hashem. It's a stage. But the, but the story is much longer. Okay, I'm not reading because I was talking. Um, that's right, Natalie. It wasn't a chabad out of the metaphor. It's a lot of people. And that's, and that's what I was trying to say, that there is both metaphor and real, the destruction and the loss and the people. That is, that is, it is, it is not being ignored. It's a, it's a part of the story here, but it's not the focus at the moment. Yes, Sophia, it is just like that. Yes. Um, Joel, I, yeah, I do think it's minimizing the temple. I think it is. And I think that's, again, like if we think about it in a, in a meta way, that was one of the gifts that Chazal gave us. To at once mourn and lament and, and, and give us ways of never moving on completely from the loss of the temple, but also giving us a way of being in relationship with each other and with, and with Hashem through the Torah, with the temple not at, not at the center. In the Nimshal, who is the pedagogue? Is it the rabbis themselves? And they, yes, yes. And I think not just Talmud Torah, Gabe, but I think that it's Talmud Torah in the way that they're modeling it. Right, a Talmud Torah that is reading with the redemptive eye. Okay, how are we doing on time? Where's anybody going? It's just about, okay, um, 3.30, okay. We're running yeah, we out of time. Yeah, we have about 15 minutes. Okay. Um, so, can you scroll down, please? If I'm, if I'm losing time, I need to go, or not losing time, but if I'm making a choice, I should choose the third over the second, because the, the second is, but wait, I haven't decided yet. Okay, we'll do the second quickly. We're not going to pause after the second, and we need to get to the third, because the third is just a bit more redemptive than this one. Okay. You know this story. You've seen it in other capacities. You'll let me know uh, in, in a minute uh, where you know it from. Okay, the Midrash is on a pasuk in Paragimel, Ani HaGever, that I referenced in the beginning. That's the I voice. That's Yirmiyahu, according to Chazal, who is giving of himself and of his own story. But it's also kind of startling if you've been reading along, because Perak Aleph and Perak Bet do not have the I voice in, in terms of a male. Right? The metaphor has been a woman. Every so often the Mishorer interrupts and speaks directly, so to speak, to the audience. But the question that Chazal implicitly are asking is, Mihu Hagever Hazeh? Like, who is this? Ani Hagever. Who are you? What does it mean? Okay. Um, in the interest of time, I'm skipping the first line, which is a kind of a paraphrase, and go to the Masha. Masha Lamelech Shekaas Al Matrona. Now we're back in the marriage relationship. There's anger again. There's a king who gets angry at his wife. Udechafa, he pushes her out. Vahotzi'a chutz lapalatin. Halcha v'tzimtzama paneha achar ha'amud. He kicks her out of the palace, and she goes and she constricts herself. Tzimtzum, right? She makes herself small next to the pillar. But she doesn't actually leave the palace. And when he presumably stumbles out of the palace and right away sees her, he says, Akashi right? Which is like, you're chutzpidik. 
you're acting with, with, with brazenness, presumably, because she hasn't left. Amra lo, Adoni ha-melech, kach yafeli, v'kach na'eh, v'kach ra'uili, shelo kibla udcha isha acheret, ela ani. It's amazing, right? We don't know what the fight was about. We've never known. We don't know what the cast was about. We've never known. At this moment, when he says to her, you're being brazen because you're still here, she says, no, no, no. I'm totally in the right. It's totally appropriate for me to be right here because if you remember back at the beginning of things, nobody else would have you except for me. Right now, we could say a lot here about what happens when, when couples fight. Very often, the fight or the disagreement or the rupture is the same. It just looks different over time. In this case, it's being told in a very extreme way. Whatever they're fighting about is that, right? So she says, don't forget what happened in the beginning. And he says, what do you mean? No, I didn't want to go out with any of those other girls. I only wanted to go out with you. She says, really? That's how you remember things? Then why were you going down that street and into that courtyard or in an updated sense on that website and that app? Wasn't it for that woman and that woman and that woman and she wouldn't have you? End of conversation, right? Now there's so much to say about this, but we want to get to the end. Spousal arguments, we're, we're, we're looking at it from up here. We don't know the truth as the readers. The only indication we get, which Chazal give us, is the way they craft the story is that it ends with her comment. She gets the last word. He doesn't retort. Now we know who, he, who in, he and she are. It's us and Hashem. You know the story, right? This is the story of Hashem offering the Torah to all the other nations. But in the versions that you normally know it, it's a story that either denigrates the Gentiles or makes the Jews look like, you know, we don't ask any questions. We're great. But in this version, I'm just, I'm just I'm skimming. When Hashem says to Yisrael, Akashitun Apechon, which is the version of you're still here hanging on to the pillar, we say to God, yeah, you better believe it that we're still here because nobody else would have you. He says, what do you mean? We say, yeah, that's what happened. You offer the Torah to everybody and nobody would have it. And we said to you, Kol Asher Diber Hashem Naseh Vinishma. So our ability to be here right now. Now, how does this fit with what we're talking about? How does this relate to ambiguous loss? We're back in a situation in this Midrash where there is a rupture. Nobody wants to be in that position, either of the banisher or the banishee. Nobody wants to be in a marriage where you're finding a way to negotiate that you should stay in the, no, no, right? This is terrible. And yet what Chazal are saying to us is there's a way that we can have agency and we can say to Hashem, we're not going anywhere. We want in. We want to be here. I know it looks like it's over. I know you feel like it's over. It's not. We're finding a way back. Okay, let me show, make it more clear to you in the last one and then we'll, and then we'll pause for comments. Okay, here's a tissue of redemption. Zot Ashiv Elibi Alkane Ochil. Also Paragimel. It's that moment in Paragimel where the Mishorer has just described his total absence of hope, his inability to even remember what that felt like. And then he says this pasuk, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. And what follows is, Hashem is great. 
What happened? Where, where, what, what's the zote? What are you, what are you recalling to your mind? And then suddenly you're able to find a new way of being, a new way of thinking, a new way of breathing. Here's the mashal. A woman, a man, a, a king who married a woman and he wrote for her a tremendous ketubah, meaning not the regularized one, but he wrote in the ketubah, in the event of the dissolution of our marriage, I will give you this number of dwellings and this amount of jewelry and this amount of kesef ezahav, a rabbinic love poem, right? He doesn't give her the gifts, he writes about them in a legal kind of way, but he's expressing to her at the outset of our wedding, I love you so much, I wanna take care of you, no matter what happens, I'm putting aside all these things for you. And then he went away for many, many years to the provinces, remember we saw that. This is the Ke'almana. This is the king who puts his wife in a position where she's like an almana, but not because of. What word is missing from this mashal? Ka'as, there's no ka'as. This is another way of understanding what's happened. There's not ka'as. There's just, there's, there's, I don't want to fill in a word, abandonment, abandonment that only feels like abandonment, but isn't really. And what happens while he's gone? The shechenot would make fun of her and they would say to her, like, lady, what are you doing? He's not coming back. It's been so many years. Go and marry someone else. And she would cry and she would sigh. And then she would go into her original chupa and she would read the ketubah and she would sigh again. But this sighing at the end of the reading was not like the first sighing. Not all cries are the same. We know that. The crying, the sighing at the end was the sigh that allowed her to wipe her tears from her face, go out of that chupa and face another day, another month, another year, until probably the cycle started again and she went right back in. Many years later, the king comes back and he says to her, I can't believe it. How'd you do it? I can't, I, I don't understand, right? Maybe not what we would have wanted him to say. There's no explanation, but he says, how did you do it? And she says to him, my master, my king, were it not for that gorgeous ketubah that you wrote for me, that you had the foresight to write for me, I wouldn't still be here. It's an incredible move because instead of saying to him at that moment, you know what, I'm just really patient and I'm really resourceful. That's why I'm here. She turns it into an opportunity to bring him back into the relationship and to say, I know that you not, you didn't plan this, you didn't plan to abandon me, but you showed me how much love you have for me in that writing of the ketubah. And every time I went into my chuppah and I read the ketubah, yes, I had to do some imaginative work to recover that love but it was there because you planted it. We survived this together. We survived the bidud that we had together. And now that we're back, we can repair and we can return. The reason why I find this mashal to be so helpful is because when Chazal wrote this and when we're reading it, we're still in that time zone before the biyat before the Chazara. They're confident it will happen. 
hopefully we're confident it will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. We're living in that in-between time. We're living in that time when you could, as the neighbors did, as in the Nimshal, the Christians did. They said, it's over, move on, join the new covenant, right? We could have read it that way, but Chazal say, let's not do that. Let's not read it that way. Let's look at the treasures that we have. Let's look at the, at the, the gifts that Hashem has given us and find in them reason to stick around. Again, is this what we would have dreamed of? Is this what we dream of for our kids? No, but it's the reality. It's the loss with the possibility of, of, of hope. That's the ambiguous loss that Chazal created for us that has allowed us over these years to live with so much suffering and with so much beautiful connection and culture and growth, both spiritually, intellectually, and, and physically. That's also Tisha B'Av. That's also what metaphor can do for you. It gives you breathing space. It allows you to really explore all the sides of the condition. And hopefully, it also provides some comfort. Thank you all for learning with me today. If anybody has any final comments or questions, please, you can just unmute yourself or, or just write it in the chat. Thank you, Adina. So nice to learn with you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Chikobos, and thank you so much to everyone for being here. Um, I just wanted to quickly note our last session for the day, which will be beginning uh, at four o'clock. Uh, we have two parallel sessions. We have God Who Suffers With, Divine Presence Amidst Pain with Rabbi Dr. Julia Watts-Belser. We also have a session geared toward uh, young women in high school, uh, the Poetics of Destruction, a text study and interactive workshop with Shira Hecht Kohler. Uh, so we hope to see you back for that. Uh, a meaningful and, and easy rest of the fast for everyone.